0: All right. Good morning, CBC. How are we doing? This is my second favorite Sunday of the year. Of course, every good Christian, the answer is Easter is your first and foremost favorite Sunday of the year. But uh, today, I hope you got an extra hour's worth of sleep. I don't know what people in Arizona and Hawaii do. This should be like a national holiday, right? But uh, it's good to be with you guys this morning. And uh, really excited. I love communion. And uh, that's what we want to be working ourselves towards in this worship service. Communion is a... Uh, man, I'm just so thankful that the Lord left that ordinance for us. Because as we come in rightful alignment with Him, it automatically tries out, translates out into a rightful alignment with each other. And it's a very unique thing that we practice as Christians. Right? Of this, these symbols that we identify in such a, a close way with the Lord. So... Let's pray. Uh, we're going to be in uh, three different primary texts this morning. I know uh, probably if your if your notes there, it may say Matthew ten. We're actually going to start at the last part of Matthew chapter nine to give us a little bit of a context. And we're going to look at really uh, three really short, concise teachings from the Lord that I hope is going to lend to some perspective this morning. So, Father, thank you for the opportunity to teach the Word. Uh, Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity uh, to worship here with this community of believers. And Lord, we confess our dependency upon you uh, in all things, but especially uh, we rely on your Holy Spirit to illuminate the Word uh, in our minds this morning. Uh, Lord, we are a people within a nation who have a greater citizenship than our United States citizenship, and we want to... Honor the place that you have placed us in by learning more and more how to glorify you with our lives every day. And so uh, let the words of Christ this morning dwell richly within us as your word teaches us in Colossians 3. And we pray, Lord, that faith uh, today would grow and it would transform our lives into ways that make an impact for your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I heard this story recently. It's a true story. This guy goes to bed one night, falls into a deep sleep, and he has this dream. And in the dream, he pictures himself in heaven, and he is standing just outside the throne room of God, looking into the throne room. And as he is just taken in this vision, he can see God on his throne. And as he is just just basking in in this visual experience, God on the throne recognizes him... ...and motions him to come forward. Well, he's blown away. And so he immediately moves through the the threshold. And as he is coming into the throne room of God... ...he recognizes recognizes that something is really wrong here. Uh, First of all, he's not walking upright. And second of all, he doesn't just have two legs. He has four legs. And he's furry and he has paws. And he quickly surmises that somehow in this dream in heaven... ...he has become a cat... All right. Now some of you are going, he's a heretic, and I'm no. It's, this is a dream. It's not scripture, right? So, so, so this guy in this dream, true story. This guy says, you know, he's sort of caught. Like, do I keep going? Do I what? But he's just drawn towards God's presence, right? So. So he just keeps moving towards the throne of God. And as he gets closer, his heart just becomes overfilled with joy and adoration. And and he is just, he is feeling all kinds of love towards God. And he notices he starts to purr right? And so it's never happened to him before, but the closer he gets, the louder the motor is running, right? And, uh, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's really a weird experience, but all he knows is he's pressing further to the throne of God. And so as he gets really close, he, he has this idea. He's like, wow, how does a cat express worship to God? And so he thinks, I'm just going to like get close and just rub up against God's leg, Because that will show him just how much I love him. And so he comes close to God. And to his surprise, as he's moving in to to rub himself against God's leg, God is actually bending over and reaching out to pet him. And so instinctively, as a cat, he puts his paws down and his claws in, and he stretches out, and he waits to be petted by God. And God reaches down and strokes him, and he said in that dream it was the most unnerving, disconcerting thing that he has ever experienced. It was terrible. And he just couldn't believe it. And, and as, as soon as he shook off the, the first stroke, here comes God again, and he's petting him again. And it was equally just, it was a terrible experience. It bothered everything within him. And he realized that God, as he was petting him, was not stroking him from head to tail, but he was stroking him from tail to head. From tail to head, right? And, after the, and, and the third time, as God is petting him, he wakes up. Too uncomfortable, wakes up. Well, have you ever had a dream where it's just, you know, you, you just, it's like, that was real, right? And it takes you a, a while to to come back to reality. This guy couldn't go to sleep. So he, he gets up, and he's, he's in the scripture, he's in prayer, through the wee hours of the night into the morning, researching cats in the Bible, the throne room of God. He's trying to figure out, what does this dream mean? And he skips work that day, he goes online, he gets, every, he gets every resource he can put his hands on to try to figure out the interpretation of this dream, and he has nothing. He wears himself out all day long. Comes into the evening, he's got nothing to show for it, no ideas, he figures, must have been the pizza I ate last night, right? Exhausted, goes to bed, falls into a deep sleep, starts to dream, he's right back in the exact same place as the night before, as a cat. God is motioning him forward, comes into the throne room, purring up a storm, wanting to move close to God to express his love and adoration. As he comes close, God reaches down to pet him once again, and again, it is the most uncomfortable, bothersome thing he has ever had to withstand. Stroke from tail to head, from tail to head, and the third time, again, it's so uncomfortable, he wakes up. Well, and the second morning, he decides he's going to call every charismatic friend that he's got, every, every pastor. He needs an interpreter of dreams. He needs somebody with a word of knowledge, prophecy, something. Goes all day reaching out to as many people as possible, tries to figure out what does this dream mean? What is God communicating to me? Nothing. He's got nothing to show for it. So that night, the third night, as he gets ready to go to bed, he hits his knees and he says, God... If this dream is from you, then I pray that I would experience it again. And I pray that you would give me the strength to stay in there so that I might not wake up and I might hear what you have to say. I might learn what you're trying to tell me in this dream. Goes to bed, falls asleep, right back in the throne room again. And this time as he comes forward, he's very aware of the last two experiences. And so as God begins to pet him, he strengthens himself. And sure enough, tail to head, tail to head, third stroke, doesn't wake up. Fourth stroke, fifth stroke, he is miserable. Sixth stroke, and he finally, you know, has comprised himself. He's got himself together, and he realizes he can ask God, what is the meaning of this? Why are you doing this to me? And so he speaks up, he asks God, he says, Mow. <laughs> Which is okay because God speaks cat, you know. But, he, but he, says, he says, God, why are you petting me in this way? Why, why are you doing this to me? Why, what are you trying to say to me? And God in the dream says, my child, face the other direction. Right? He woke up from that dream, and here's what he said. He goes, the most simple thing that I should know about prayer is the most easiest to overlook, and that is when I approach the throne of God, it is I who needs to adjust and not God. And I just thought, when I heard that story, I thought, man, that is such a good reminder, especially at a time when we feel a great deal of tension in our culture. And I promise you... I'm not here to politicize this morning. When we meet in the name of Jesus, he should be our focus. But I cast, my, I cast my first presidential vote for Reagan's second term. So that should tell you how old I am. And I've always sort of had an interest in politics. And I've been around to see a few elections. And I've just never seen one like this. And there's a, there's a sense of, of anxiety and fear and nervousness in our culture that is really unusual. And I feel like there are people who are sort of holding their breath to see what Tuesday brings and maybe what the trajectory of the United States is moving forward. And while I acknowledge all of that, what I would challenge us with this morning is never has there been such an opportunity... For the church of Jesus Christ to stand strong in the calling and the mission of God. And to focus in more than ever on what is it that our great king would have us to do. How are we to be about kingdom business regardless of what is happening in the world? What is our perspective regardless of how out of control things may seem at times? And as we come to God to be very aware that maybe some of the unrest that we experience in prayer is because maybe we're facing the wrong direction, right? Maybe we need to change our perspective. So this morning's text, I pray, is going to help us uh, to get there and to do that. So Matthew chapter 9, we're going to look at four verses as quickly as we can that will lay the foundation for where we're going in Matthew chapter 10. And at this point, uh, the disciples have been traveling with Jesus. Now, Jesus traveled with an entourage of men and women together. And out of those that group of people he traveled with, he tapped 12 people specifically to be his disciple. A disciple is a learner that follows a teacher. And the way that that learning experience went was the rabbi would, teach, would call the disciple and say, hey, come and watch. Come and watch what I do. And then now, together, let's do it together. And then he would say, you do, and I'll watch. And ultimately, that disciple was to take over as the master would say, all right, now you do. And so there in the middle of this process, uh, Matthew, as many of you know, was a disciple. He witnessed these things firsthand. He was a tax collector, which meant that he was a great observer of details. And in Matthew chapter 9, at the end of that chapter... Matthew sums up a life in the day of Jesus. And here's what he says. Verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom in healing every disease and affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, for they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Now, I want you to think about what's being described here. I want you to think about this disciple's overall impression in his observation of Jesus day to day. And the thing that, that I think that we need to, to begin to pick up on here is that Jesus had a very intentional way of going about the Father's business here on earth. And I think the first thing that jumps out at Jesus's strategy here is Jesus was all about cultural immersion. Cultural immersion. What does that mean? That means Jesus didn't just blow into town, give a message, and take off. Jesus went into what? All the villages, all the cities, and he took the time to interact with people. Jesus. with people. Jesus visited with people. Jesus did life with people. Jesus hung out with people. Jesus hung out with questionable people. Jesus was all about taking his time, going in, connecting with people in a way that wasn't just about him listening and understanding. It was a way of interacting with them and affirming them as people. Cultural immersion. Jesus would go into and he would move with the intention of doing as much of this as he was doing this. He would move in and he would interact and he would would win the right to be heard. And the message that Jesus brought with him, it says here, was the gospel. Now a gospel is a funny word in the New Testament that simply means good news. Jesus had good news. That was his message. And in order for people to... ...received that message clearly, he took the time to immerse himself in their culture. Now, in ancient Israel, you might think everybody looked the same, talked the same, you know, carbon copies of each other. But I can tell you that the northern part of Israel, where Galilee was, the Galileans were very different than the southern part of Israel. And I can tell you that the Israelites who lived in Jerusalem were very different than the ones who lived in Samaria... And I can tell you that the ones that lived along the eastern side of the Jordan River and the Dead Sea... ...they were very different than the ones who lived on the western coast where the Mediterranean. And Jesus made it his business to go throughout all the cities and villages... ...with a message of the gospel. And as he went in and as he connected with those people... ...something very curious happened that Matthew noted here. And it says... When Jesus saw the crowds, he had what? Compassion. Now, that word that Matthew uses there for Saul is not a, hey, I was driving into Clarksburg today and I happened to see a new billboard or, hey, I saw somebody do this. It was that word that Matthew uses means that Jesus took the time and he studied intently, he watched, he looked. He looked beyond the surface of people and their culture. He looked deeply beneath, took the time to see people as more than just random folks, but would study them. And when he studied them, it produced what? Compassion. Now, that is a word that you're not going to find very often in the scriptures. As a matter of fact, where it's used, it's used right here in this context. And it's interesting because Matthew was very precise with the language that he was writing out because that word does not mean Jesus had pity. Jesus felt sorry for them. Jesus had empathy. Jesus sympathized with them. Uh, That is a word, compassion in the Greek, that you would use uh, if you were sick to your stomach and were spending a lot of time in the bathroom. Uh, that is a word that basically you could use to say uh, that you were nauseated over something. Um, when um, I think one of the best examples I've seen of this, how many of you guys remember? It's probably about 10 or 11 years ago, Selbyville mine disaster. You guys remember that? Brown New Year's mine disaster in Selbyville. Uh, at the time, I was a youth pastor, and I had a sort of an interesting connection with that because. Uh, one of the, the, the teens in our youth group, Chris McCloy, his brother, Randall, was the lone survival, uh, su- survivor of that. And, uh, and so when that news came, we as a, you know, as a youth group huddled around him, and we were very, very involved in, in paying attention and praying and so forth. But that community, when that disaster hit, do you remember everybody just sort of came to, it was a Baptist church, right, if I remember right? And they all the, the community came together, family, extended family, they just put on a prayer vigil and man they were they were going to pray those miners through that and uh, and the and the network media descended on you know the backside of Upshur County and it was just nonstop coverage and at one point in time message came from the, the from the rescue crew that they had found the miners and they were alive do you guys remember this and the people in that church were elated. They were ringing the bell. They were celebrating. They were so thankful and joyous. And within just a very short period of time, the correction came. And they said, no, no, no. We have found them, but we fear they're all dead. At that moment, there were people in that church that literally had to run outside and vomit because the news of that hopelessness hit them so hard. Um, That is the word that Matthew uses here. That when Jesus took the time to see the duress and the hopelessness of the world around him, it produced a feeling that made him just sick at his stomach. It moved him. And and Matthew went on to say that, that Jesus looked at them like they were sheep. Without a shepherd. He, he saw that they were harassed. That they were helpless. You ever feel like life's out of control? You know, life's just out of your control. And, and that would be bad enough. But when you feel like somebody somewhere is picking on you on top of that. That takes a bad situation and makes it worse. Right? And this is, this is what Jesus saw in the world around him. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And then he challenged the disciples to begin to pray. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he might send more into the harvest field. You see, Jesus was modeling something very, very important about the mission of God on planet Earth. Jesus was taking the gospel into the culture as the Savior. You might want to write that down. Jesus was taking the gospel into the culture as the Savior. That is the rescue mission that God has been on since the time Adam and Eve stepped out of the Garden of Eden under the penalty for their sin. The gospel into the culture as the Savior. Jesus did this by immersing himself in the culture. Jesus did this taking with him a message of hope and good news. Jesus did this with great compassion. He didn't disconnect from the situation emotionally. And Jesus did this with a sense of urgency and a sense of intention, of of importance and significance, and it impacted the disciples, because it wasn't a once every so often they saw Jesus act this way, it was a day after day after day, look at what it says, in all the cities and villages, move over to Matthew chapter 10, so Matthew begins to coming out of chapter 9 he begins to continue to fill in the details and you can you can gain a sense here that Jesus is working with this group of people and he's moving them to a place to where he wants them to join in on the work and actually to do the work. So he assembles them together, and now he is getting ready to commission them to send them out. To do what? To take the gospel into the culture with the news of the Savior. That's what Jesus was doing. That's what he's gotten his disciples ready to do. And that's what he is getting, he's briefing them on, getting them ready to go out. The gospel into the culture with the message of the Savior. And look at what verse 16 says. So imagine this. You're about to, you're, you're about to entrust a, a hodgepodge motley crew of guys that you've recruited from the most unlikely places to now go out and represent you. Right, into these numerous cities and villages. And what would you be sure to tell these folks before they left, right? Uh, Jesus has interesting advice here in verse 16. It says, Behold... I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Okay, by my count, that's four animals in a Yoda, Mr. Miyagi sentence, and I'm going... To, I'd be like a little nervous as a disciple, and I'm like, uh, I need direct communication right now, right? You know. But Jesus, again, he's, he's speaking to them in these, in these symbols and, and metaphors, and, and, and it's really interesting, right? But here's what, I, here's what I'd suggest to you. In that short, compressed sentence, Jesus introduces a strategy... For continuing his mission. For taking the gospel into the culture with the news of the Savior. That's, that's the mission. Okay, how do you do that? What's the strategy? Well, Jesus is saying straight out, I'm sending. I'm sending you. Did you guys know that God is a sending God? Did you know that? I mean, maybe you're here this morning and you're not, you're not really a Christian you're, you're sort of identifying, but maybe you're just sort of trying on this spirituality to see if it fits, kicking the tires or whatever. Welcome. We are glad you're here. But one of the things that I think is a misconception with a lot of, of folks in our culture is they don't understand that Christian spirituality is kinetic. It's on the move. And God is sending. God has always been a sender. Since the beginning of mankind's history after the Garden of Eden, God has been sending people to reach people with a message of rescue and hope. That's from the beginning. Uh, God uses people to reach people. And ultimately, God stepped into history as a human being for the purpose of reaching human beings. Right? He came to fulfill all of that together. So not only is God a sending God, but if we are his people, we must be people who go. Thank you. <laughs> right? we got to be missional. we got to be on point because that's who our God is. And that's how he moves. And that's part of who we are as his people, as covenant people, meaning if we're in oneness with him, he sends, we go. He reaches through us people who need to be reached. So, God is ascending God. We are on a mission. And the plan of Jesus is to insert peaceful people into hostile culture. (laughs) Inserting peaceful people into hostile culture. Wow, that sounds safe, doesn't it? (laughs) Listen, God is not safe, He's good. Right? That's that classic quote from C.S. Lewis. And, And as we understand a greater perspective than forming our own heaven on earth or our personal comfort through free enterprise, democracy, whatever it is, gaining a kingdom perspective and a greater reality will put you into a position to where you're more cooperative to what God is doing when he sends you and where he tells you to go. And how he does that is yes, he puts us into hostile situations, but he inserts us as peaceful people. Be as sheep amidst wolves. Now, interesting. If you've got your Bible open, look at the latter part of Matthew 9, where we just read, Jesus' diagnosis of what he saw, these people who were harassed, hassled, hopeless, they were like sheep without what? A shepherd. So Jesus is saying the number one thing they need is a shepherd. Yet he is commissioning commissioning his disciples to go as what? We need to think about that. We need to think about that. Because I feel and I fear that much of today's way of Christian culture addressing The culture around us that does not know God is in a very heavy-handed way to where we assert ourselves as sort of leaders to help people understand what they're doing wrong, how they're doing it wrong, and how they need to straighten up their life. And there's not a lot of room for humility in that, folks. Am I right? Yes, they need a shepherd. But what they need is for sheep who can come and meet them in humility and tell them about the good shepherd. You know, when we approach people from a place of humility, understanding the difference God has made in our lives, understanding the covering of grace that happens when we as a sheep enter into the good shepherd's flock, man, that conversation goes a lot smoother. Does it not? I mean, it's like it's the easiest thing if I'm taking the time to listen and to relate to another person who's harassed who's helpless for me to say, can I share something with you? Man, the Lord is my shepherd. And like, I'm never in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. It's his reputation on the line. Therefore, he puts a lot of investment in me. And even though life can get rough and dangerous and confusing, and I even walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't have anything to fear. I don't have evil to fear of because my shepherd is with me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. Uh, Jesus is my self control, Jesus is my boundaries. He prepares a table before me, even in the presence of my enemies. And they have to stand back and respect that. He anoints my head with oil. My cup overflows. Check this. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And friend, there's room for you in the fold as well. As a matter of fact, the good shepherd sent me to tell you personally to come with me. Because there is room he loves nothing more than the taking on the new sheep into his fold where you can know the joy of the Lord, your good shepherd. There's a whole big difference with that, right? Jesus doesn't send us out as these quasi-shepherds. He sends us as sheep to reach sheep with the good news. Amen? That's a good place for an amen. You Baptist people awake this morning? <laughs> so, so I want us to really think about that because... Listen, um, I think think that's one of the toughest disciplines to learn is to not push our agenda. And counseling has helped me with that a great deal because, you know, one of the first things I cover with a client is, listen, I know, yep, Christian counseling. Check, right, you're in the right spot. But you need to understand that I am not here to tell you what to do. I am not here to impose my sense of right and wrong on you. I'm not here to try to impart my will to you. I'm here to encourage you. I'm here to listen to you. I'm here, as we talk, to give you feedback from a biblical perspective, okay? But ultimately, I'm going to testify to a perfect person even though I'm imperfect. And that's sort of the way it works with taking the gospel into the culture on behalf of the Savior. Does that make sense? Jesus goes on. He shifts from sheep among wolves and he picks up this this other animal. And he talks about being as wise as a serpent. Wise as a serpent. Now, I've been called a lot of things in my life. I don't think I've ever been called a snake. I can't imagine somebody coming up to me and go, Chris... Man, I'm hearing God is doing awesome things, and 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 with your work with freedom in Christ and counseling. And dude, I just want you to know you are a class snake. High five! Right? Uh, <laughs> that is not a compliment that we sort. You know, we don't. When's the last time you shared with a brother or sister? I think you are a serpent, man. Awesome. But that's what Jesus is challenging us to be. So, so we've got to look at this, and we have to understand. And, we, and I, I think we need to shift out of our 21st century understanding. We need to step back a couple thousand years. And here's, here's what you need to know. The ancient world really respected and revered snakes. Even if they didn't worship them, they had a lot of respect for them because this is one of the most outclassed animals on planet Earth. They have to survive on their bellies continually. They've got scales, but they sure don't have armor. And, and throughout all of mankind's history, they've not only survived, but snakes can, like, thrive in very destitute places. So they were viewed as being wise. But do you know what the number one asset of a snake was viewed, at by, viewed as by the ancient world? It's not their fangs. It's in the name. The clue is in the name. When we see the word serpent or snake in English in our Bible in this context, it's the same word that we get optometrist from, ophthalmology. It has to do with our eyes. And the ancient world understood that a snake had an incredible power to observe patiently and to wait for opportunity to be as wise as a serpent. That's what that means. I've got a niece, and I love her to death, but she's crazy. (laughs) She has a pet snake. I know, heck no, not in my house, right? (laughs) And it's one of these big ones, right? It's like some type of python. and, uh, And anyway, she keeps this thing in a terrarium, and I guess in order to be a good pet owner as a snake. You got to feed them. Do you know what you feed a snake that size? Rodents, mice, right? So, so they'll, go to the, they'll go to the pet store every so often and come home. You know, there's a nice little box of mice, right? And, uh, and, and they'll take one of those things out. She'll take one of them out. She'll walk over and the snake will see it. Honest to goodness, snake will see it. And it knows what's about to happen. And they'll, they'll slide part of the opening on the top and they'll drop that mouse in that terrarium. And, and once they drop it in there, that mouse like just instinctively knows like danger, right? And uh, man, it starts to freak out. And so that mouse tries to hide, tries to run, tries to work its way out of there. Anything it can do to survive. Do you know what that snake does the whole time? Nothing. 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 But eventually, that mouse wears itself out and it just sort of gives in to the environment. And when it's wore itself out and has sort of given in, you know what that snake does? It strikes right now. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at with us, folks. Can we hang in there long enough with the people we have compassion for to let them wear themselves out knowing that God is going to give us an opportunity to strike at the heart with truth, with the message of gospel, of the gospel in a way when they will receive it the most. And man, it is hard to get there sometimes, right? Because you just want to shake people at times and say, can you not see this? Will you not straighten up? Why won't you? But taking the gospel into the culture... With impact means that we're people of peace and we observe for the moment that it's right to strike with the truth. And I'll tell you something else. If you take the time to observe the culture that's within your sphere of influence, it'll break your heart. It'll, it'll produce that compassion within you. And in so doing, you'll be a paradox like Jesus is talking here. You're going to be as wise as a serpent and as innocent as a as a dove because you're not driving your agenda you're not trying to conform a person into your image you are simply about your teacher's business of how he modeled kingdom building taking the gospel into the culture does that make sense? Awesome turn to Matthew 28 Matthew 28 so uh, Jesus says come and see uh, We'll do this together, you do why I watch, and now it's the commissioning. You go and do. And so Matthew 28 is some of the last words that we have from Jesus on planet earth before he ascends back to heaven. And he's got a whole collection of people around him on this mountaintop. And Jesus is recorded here as saying, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations." baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now I want you to think about those words. I want you to think about what Jesus modeled. And Jesus is giving our job description right there. And what is he saying is the crux of who we are to be as kingdom builders. We are to take the gospel into the as the church that's it i mean it's it's really i'm so glad like god puts the cookies on the lowest shelf you know cuz we don't have to overthink it it's taking the gospel into the culture as the church the mission's never changed god uses people to reach people with a message of hope and he does it collectively together you know, today we're going to take communion together. I love that because there's really no me-ism in Christianity. It's we-ism. And every time I get to take communion with a group of fellow believers, it just sort of reminds me, hey, we're all in, right? Yes, we're all in. And, man, aren't we thankful for God's grace? And so what I want to do is I want to ask you just a, a few really poignant questions. And I'm going, to be, I'm, going to, I'm going to ask you as Clarksburg Baptist this morning. You know, when it comes to the mission, when it comes to kingdom work, the gospel into the culture now as the church, CBC, do you know the gospel? Do you know how to explain the gospel in very simple terms? Because my suggestion is, if you're as a peaceful person and as wise as a serpent and as harmless as a dove, you don't have to know 20 different arguments about why it makes sense to believe in Jesus. You love people, you have compassion for them, you wait, and then when that teachable moment presents, you give the answer. What's the gospel? If you want to write it down, we don't have time to go there this morning, but 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, I think does a pretty good job with that. One of the most missional people that you see in the Bible is the Apostle Paul. He's like, you know, the varsity of missionaries. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he's summing up, here's the gospel. He breaks it down, but in verse, the latter part of verse 3 and part verse 4 there, he says, that which I receive, that's the most important I am giving to you as well, that Jesus Christ died for sins was buried and rose again on the third day. All of this happened just like the scriptures said it would and just as the scriptures have recorded. What is the gospel? God created us to be with him. Our sin separates us from God. Uh, sin cannot be overcome with good works. Amen? Amen? How many sins does it take a person to become a sinner, CBC? What? Zero. Why? Because you're born that way. How many many right things does it take? How many good works does it take a person to become right with God? Zero, because you need to be born that way. Jesus paid the price for our sin so that we could have a rebirth. God showed his approval of that as he raised Jesus from the dead. And everyone who believes in that has eternal life. And eternal life means you and I, one together with God forever. Awesome. That's the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, one through 4. You didn't know I was going to throw a quiz this morning, did you? Do you know the culture? Second question, CBC. Do you know your culture? You know the world that you live in and and the area in which you operate in. And it's not enough to know the culture. Are you willing to walk with the culture in their pain, in their mess, in their dysfunction? Are you ready to roll up your sleeves and to lean upon God to make sure that you are a conduit of His grace being filled every day in order to engage the, go- the culture with the gospel, with compassion. Uh, one of the best ways to see that happening, again, is through the Apostle Paul. You can write this reference down, 1 Corinthians 9. In 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23, Paul's saying, Listen, we ought to strive to be all things to all people so that we can win some now that sounds very political doesn't it it does if you're pushing your own personal agenda or a platform but if you are just trying to get the greatest news ever heard into the mind of a people of a person who's hungry that's not political at all paul says To the Jew, I became like a Jew. To the Gentile, I became like a Gentile. To those who were more legalistic, I conformed to rules. To those who were more loosey-goosey, I freed freed myself up in Christian liberties. And to the weak, I became weak. All that I could relate on some level so that I can become all things to all people. Uh, We have an opportunity to make a difference in a very unique way in Harrison County. Uh, If you know your culture and if you're willing to step into it, God will showcase the gospel through you. I promise. Do you know your gospel? Do you know the culture? And finally, CBC, do you know the church? Do you know the church? That's an important question for you to be asking, especially if you're in a pastor search. Uh, a good verse to write down is 1 Corinthians twelve eighteen. 1 Corinthians 12:18 goes hand in hand with Romans chapter 12. It goes hand in hand with Acts chapter 3. It basically teaches us this: It's God who adds to the church. It's ultimately a, 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 a God's providential sovereignty, who he assembles. That's not just a church universal. I'm telling you that God draws people into certain local bodies, and that is how he puts them together to work in a specific way. You say, well, why is that important? Because we live in the day and age of the super Walmart, Target, Costco, Sam's, where the idea is, we got to come up with all these right programs that will supposedly impact people. And then after we come up with the program and the strategy, we plug people into the slots to pull it off. That ain't going to work for you. The reverse of that is, you recognize the church who God has brought together. What your passion, your spiritual gifting is, your skill sets And then working with leadership, you create platforms that showcase God's gifting in who he's assembled, and he will direct you into success in unbelievable ways in your community to impact through the gospel, in the culture, as the church. Does that make sense? I want you, if you get a chance to listen to that again, because that's a pet peeve of mine. As a pastor, I went down the wrong road of that many, many times. But the moment you begin to say, hey, how can I steward the giftings that God has put together in this church, then you step into a unique calling that man creates all kinds of momentum. It's awesome. Because God puts you right into the places of the people who need shepherded, and as sheep, you reach them. If you have the gospel in the culture without the church, you have the parachurch. Nothing wrong with the parachurch but it only helps a select group of people for a certain amount of time. The church of Jesus Christ alone can walk a person and a family through the entire lifespan. From the youngest to the oldest. It's awesome. If you have the gospel and the church without the culture, well then you have the holy huddle where people sort of get in their own little group. Every so often they throw a token salvation message over the wall hoping somebody responds to it, but the gospel with the church without the culture is fundamentalism. You know what that is, right? No fun, a whole lot of damn, and very little mental. (laughs) It's limited. If you have the church and and the culture without the gospel, well, then you have liberalism you got a hip band with a watered-down message, and everybody's getting fed or a new house, but nobody's getting a new life. Right? But that is not your destiny. That is not who you are. That is not the DNA of this church and what it was built on. And if ever there was a church position to come together and to collectively make a difference in a world of anxiety and turmoil, it's this church, guys. It's you. Because you know the gospel. You are willing to step into the culture. And you will do it collectively as a community that is inviting. And I am 100% sure of that today on November 6th, as I will be on November the 9th. Because Jesus Christ is here. Or two or more are gathered in his name, he says, count me in. I'll be there. I'll be there. So I want to I ask you to pray with me. I'm going to slide off the stage here in a second. I'm going to turn it over to, to Lou, and we're going we're to really get down to some business here with worshiping through communion this morning. But will you just pray with me this morning? Uh, Father, we confess our anxiety to you. Lord, we confess that at